This is Unplugged, a series of conversations with creative minds from the design industry and beyond, hosted by H&H. I know, it's so nice to see you virtually. Uh, where are you right now? I'm in Amsterdam. Okay, cool. Yes. Yeah. And so, you're in London, right? I'm in London. Yes, I am. At my yeah. house, in my hallway. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> my glamorous hallway. Great. How have you been? Um. Yeah, I've been good. I was saying well, years, and I'm like, this has been the best year of my life. <laughs> Um, in terms of like uh, professionally and personally, I just think that being locked down really suits me. <laughs> um, but it might be like, I don't know, I, I always um, make the best of every situation and maybe that's what it was. I've just enjoyed like not traveling and working from home and getting that kind of balance back. You know what I mean? Like just too hectic uh, the way it was before. So yeah, I've been really good. And you? That's perfect. Well, I miss a bit of the traveling, but uh, we all have to adapt to what it is now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, what, who you are and what do you do? So I'm an architect and um, I run a practice called Design House Liberty, which is in Hong Kong and London. Um, and we do a lot of interiors as well. And, and we're launching a furniture company in January, 2021. So that's very exciting. So um, what do I do? I guess um, I'm, I'm kind of a mom and entrepreneur and I run these two businesses, uh, well, same business, but in two different locations. Well, when did you set up the office in Hong Kong? Um, so the office in Hong Kong, it's so crazy because this year has literally flown by. Um, so it's actually been two to three years now and the London office was set up seven years ago. Oh, okay. Great. How is it like for you this year? Because well, we all couldn't travel to Asia at the moment, but I guess, uh, business is still going well for you. Yeah, it's funny. I think, um, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but somehow business always goes wherever I am. So if I spend more time in Asia, then our um, business development grows there. And if I stay in London, our business grows here. So since I've been here, um, the company has grown a lot here. And I'm very happy with that because, you know, my son is here. And um, yeah, it's been really good. I think if I do go back out to Asia, obviously there's all these lockdown restrictions. It probably won't be for... I don't know. It, it keeps changing, you know? So I guess, I don't know, in another, you know, mid next year, I hope I see you there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I can go back very soon. So tell us some of the projects you're working on at the moment. What's exciting going on for you? Well, all the exciting projects we've signed NDAs on because that's what <laughs> they make us do. Um, but I will say this, somehow we've been drawn into like the sports arena of things and football stadiums is something that's like, I'm like our football stadium sector has picked up. I'm kidding because we never had that sector, but we've been doing a lot of football stadiums. I say stadiums, plural, because after we recently won one that I can't talk about, 
we then were approached um, by three other ones. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Um, which we don't have the contract for, but um, I guess we're preparing to go into tender for. That's just on top of like the type of um, work we already kind of do, which is institutional, we led like commercial, like office, um, multi-unit resi, um, retail, and um, we're getting a lot more into F&B right now. So like restaurants and um, membership clubs and uh, spas and recreational centers. So it's it's cool. It's like a mixed bag. And in a way, I feel like the company style, it keeps growing with the type of projects we're presented. Um, so yeah, it's it's all kind of moving and developing. Yeah, the the football stadium sounds extremely interesting. So how how did they how did they found you? Um, most of the work that comes to the office is um, this is gonna sound wild, but it's kind of like by nature of coincidences of where I'm at. So um, I guess Yoko, you know me pretty well, and you know how I love to like kind of be out there and um, meet people and um, you know kind of like get the word out about the business so I had to be eating at a very fancy restaurant in London and the owner of a, a football um, team comes in and um, I kind of knew who he was and anyways one thing led to another um, I was like oh I'm an architect do you need any services by any chance and he just so happened to need some services and needed his stadium designed. And then it took about like a year to convert that into like an actual contract because there's a, a very um, detailed process and a tender process. And so obviously all of that takes time. And here we are. Sounds great. Yeah, I always liked how the, the way you work and the way you connect people and how you initiate this. <laughs> something very unique about you. How do you translate design into language that your clients and investor would understand? Well, that's easy. Like I said, we work with funds and developers. Probably like 99% of our projects are fund and developer led. And so they really only understand kind of like one thing, which is like money. <laughs> um, and so you constantly have to like prove that your design is going to sell and generate a lot of PR and that um, you're sensitive to their budget. And I think a lot of times like business development is a lot about like understanding who's in front of you and like what their needs are and then having an ability to feed it back to them and let them understand that you value and recognize the same things that they do. Um, and yeah, and then it's just kind of relationship building. So you know, if it was like a private client or like some or a retail client, everybody has like a different angle they want. Um, and so you you have to find those pinch points and you have to kind of like go into them. Mm. Are there any projects or examples you can share with us? So we just launched a tower with Night Dragon in Greenwich Peninsula and it's our first brand ID tower. So SOM did the Shell and Port and we did all the interiors including the lobby lobby lounge the movie theater all the garden terraces the nine penthouse collection and the communal areas and um they picked like a different key designer for each tower so tom dixon did the one next to us and then this is kind of like our first um real like brand id debut i guess you could say 
um, and it's owned by um, Adrian and Sonia's family, what's New World? Um, but in London, they're called Night Dragon. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting development because they really value creativity and art and they're using the premise of like design and all this kind of like bohemian like ideas and thoughts to kind of come together and create a new development because Greenwich Peninsula is largely kind of untouched in a way. So it's like starting from like a blank canvas and then deciding like what goes there and you know what happens. Yeah and you I remember you also you mentioned that this is kind of like a very unique opportunity for you just before or after Brexit and you mentioned that if this is not if this is not for that you might not be able to create something like this yeah definitely so um i did an interview that was about um being in the service industry you have to uh supply what's happening in demand and so if the market has changed or for whatever reason the offering is a little different for example hotel industry is down the retail industry is down you have to kind of go with the flow in order to stay afloat as a business um, so when Brexit happened, what happened with the high-end luxury residential sector, which used to be like the best sector to be in as a developer, um, there was all this people who were afraid of like uncertainty was like the key word in all the news. And so nobody was investing in very expensive residential flats in the UK because they were uncertain what was going to happen with the taxes and their money or was the property market was going to drop. So all of a sudden stale, um, the sales started to stagnate and therefore they never needed to do a full turnkey um, design. And all of a sudden they had to because when people walk into a flat and it's like fully furnished and dressed, they want to buy it like far more than if they just walk into like an empty building. So um, it's not like I really want to like you know, like I love design. I love, I'm an architect. I love architecture. But I think that when the market started to change and people needed a lot more interiors, it was a lot easier to convert those contracts and they moved quicker because you didn't have all this like on site risk. And so my business went into interiors. We basically taught ourselves the art like on the job. And I met up with a bunch of interior friends and I asked them, what's your logistics? How do you procure? Like, you know, what's the process? And we just started doing interiors. Um, and then that's led to me now doing a furniture business. Because I think that when you're doing service, you're servicing something where if you're doing a product, you're creating something and hoping that there's a market for it. But when you're doing servicing, you're looking at the market to kind of um, feed what's available. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, in a way with the furniture, I kind of approached it the same way, like looking at need and then supplying it because I, I was then in the interiors business and I noticed that the gap in the market was that I couldn't really find designer pieces that were like affordable. And even when I could, like I couldn't like pair them together to um, like there's always something missing, you know, like I need this table. I need this. I need this. And I couldn't find it. So then I was like, you know what? I'll just make it. You know, nobody has to agree with me. But then if they like the look, then they can also um, be able to access it at like an affordable price. Starting from the Prime House project you just mentioned, can you tell us about your design concept and how do you approach 
a space like that. I'm trying to be like very honest and transparent with where the inspiration comes from. And I'll, I'll have to admit, like a lot of my design, um, my design influence, I think came from my past, obviously. And so I did work for Hertzlick Demeron in the past. And I did um, work for a lot of international firms around the world. And so this idea of kind of like art and architecture and like form and sculpture is really kind of embedded in the way that I like think and I do things like very sculptural things. And I do think that was like largely influenced from my years at Herzog Dumeron um, because I remember I worked on 56 Leonard Street and it was not like cognitive that like we did a lot of like similar concepts. So the end result was never like a one-to-one, -one, but the concept of like a kitchen island doesn't have to be a square box. It can be like a sculptural form that performs as storage and as a counter unit. So like our kitchen islands are all like these curved tulips coming out with like this beautiful green marble on top. And I remember at Herzog Dumran, they're like these, basically they looked like um, a grand piano. And so they're like these weird piano shapes, you know? And so a lot of like, I think the influence is just like the training and the processes that you went through in life that kind of makes you think the way you do now. So I think uh, a lot of the influence was my past. And then another influence was, um, so an issue we have in London is sometimes you go into these flats and you just walk straight into a hallway with M&E cupboards on both sides. And I just hate that. It's so unattractive. It's like, it's like, welcome to my flat. And like, the first thing you see is like this dank hallway. It's just really not, not great. So we thought, okay, well, why don't we um, walk in? And instead of seeing this like nasty hallway with all these like bad cupboards, we'll kind of curve the walls so that the light really spills in. And we'll start to um, create like an experience where they, they come in and they're like, wow, that's such a cool flat instead of being like, oh, do I put my shoes here? You know. Um, so I think a lot of it's also very experience led and driven. And then I think the last thing is I've always been really obsessed with um, nature and materiality. And I think that a lot of the times we um, kind of like hide like something that is I don't want to say ultimately free because you pay for marble, you pay for wood, but um, there's so much processing. It's the same with food. There's so much processing in it. You kind of like forget its origins. So kind of in a way we're like eating organic food. It's like, I want to eat organic architecture, you know, because it's so beautiful the, just the way it is. So we use a lot of like raw travertine, raw marbles, like, like what does raw mean? It just means it's not like polished and like a polished apple where it doesn't even look like an apple anymore um, we use like concrete columns um, because columns are actually steel when you're in a tower they're not concrete because it's too it's too brittle right i like covered our our columns into in this like industrial material and we used real stone um tiles and we fluted them so again it was just like blending kind of the steel and glass of the outside with a lot of rawness and uh, real materials on the inside. It's amazing, but how, how, how do you how do you approach such a private space? Because at the end of the day, this will be an apartment of a certain personality, but you yeah. don't know who this person is yet. How do you suggest uh, designers or creators? It's a really good question because um, every designer has like, I guess their own style and there is no wrong or right because there's always a market for every single style, whether or not you like it or you don't like it, you know? 
And so I guess luckily, like the clients that approach us kind of already know what we're about. And, and so they don't mind like trusting us to do something that we feel is um, very design oriented. And then, yeah, I, I think that's why it's quite fun and easy working in an industrial institutional mar market because um, they're really, I mean, they're professionals. So they study the market. They always say they want international luxury. And that's something we're very good at is understanding the international market um, what we think high net worth people want to buy at what market at what price and what location this is a penthouse in Greenwich Peninsula it's not Mayfair it's not Kensington it's not Soho and we've done penthouses in every one of those locations and I can tell you we've done a different style every single time you know and and we've done a penthouses in Milan um, I mean like everywhere we've done them in Hong Kong and so Every culture and every micro location will have its own influences. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, yeah, I think people really buy into the brand and the designer. And if they think that that designer can sell, um, and especially in a market like London, where most buyers are international, they need to find somebody with like a global appeal. And so I, I think that all those are, are selling points that designers should kind of think about. Because um, you asked me a question about how I get my clients at the beginning. A lot of it is um, kind of a string of proof of events in order to kind of get that client, um, whichever one you're after. How do you see the future of spaces? What's the real estate market is expecting? That's a great question because it was funny. I was just on the phone with one of my biggest clients and we were discussing exactly this because he um, just bought a really, really big retail portfolio. And the question was like, what's going to happen to retail and hotel right now? Architects focus so much on design and not, they don't really think about markets. And for me, like my whole interest is like what's happening in the market, what's happening in the sectors, you know, because it influences like whether or not we get hired. And um, I think that what's happening right now, which happened in the office sector, but now is happening in the retail sector, is that no one's taking long leases anymore. So people used to take like 10 year retail leases um, you know, and, and, or like department stores were on 20 year leases these large department stores. And then what we saw like even before COVID was that they were basically going under and then these landlords were stuck with these um, 20 year leases uh, that they could no longer fulfill and they didn't have the money to like refurbish the department store. So anyways, my point is that um, property is changing all the time. And right now uh, with retail, you know, I think that the most common thing people keep talking about is like, user experience, but like, is that enough? And so my, um, my uh, COO, Raj, she was saying, what's really been successful over COVID in terms of retail have been the onliners, right? Like the online brands and even the small online brands. So usually the next step for these retail um, brands is that they're going to want a small brick and mortar store to have some type of physical presence. That's usually like their next step after some sort of like success in, in the um, cyberspace. And, um, and the thing with these online retailers is that they know like no retailer 
wants to do a 10 year lease anymore, they will look like at, at maybe a three to five year lease with like a break, right? Like a one to two year break. And so um, if you, if you kind of channel yourself into like what's happening with like technology and um, what's happening with um, the way people buy and the way people are like engaging with how they're accessing things, we're right now we're in the cusp of trying to think of a new way to set a strategy for um, again, of course, providing that whole retail experience of like, this is like the cool place with like, you know, an, a niche set of um, all, like very successful online retailers or whatever it is and getting that branding of making a place there. Um, but then it comes like the ideas of like, how would they structure that with a landlord to make it financially successful and viable? So it's almost like design plays like this part and everything else is like this part, you know? And it's trying to think of how to like mix the two in order to create um, sustainable ideas. And when I say sustainable, I'm not talking about like, yes, of course they have to be environmentally friendly, but I think that there's not enough focus um, like, again, I, I told you at the beginning, my job is to understand clients and if pitch idea and show that the numbers have uh, um, a, an ability to stack, then they will try it. Because at the end of the day, everything they do is at risk of their pocket. It's not our pockets. We're consultants, right? Um, but if we can, like, think creatively, if we can prove that, like, this could be sustainable in a, in a, in a certain way or... or use proof of concepts for somewhere else. We were using Sheffield in New York as an example. I don't know if you've been there. I haven't been there, but Raj had. And it's basically this place where a lot of um, online retailers basically created this very cool like shopping experience and you can go and, and buy things. I don't know, cause I haven't been, so I can't say too much. Um, but yeah, I think creating propositions need to think somehow beyond design. It's like, you know, really well thought. And then, and then it's up to, yeah, um, developers and funds on if they want to take the risk. And the truth is, it's like, in a time like COVID, we don't have a whole lot of time to, you know, think about not, not trying different things because our bread and butter way of doing things isn't working right now, right? And so in a way, we have to quickly kind of reinvent the way things are done in order to create a sustainable economy because right now we are um yeah at risk of 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 you know not really growing because we're printing money and we're not and all everything's closed right so yeah everyone get on board <laughs> basically and i remember you you have done some retail concept in in china recently right yeah do you see their are there any differences in terms of demand, what people want or what the market want in, in, in Asia and in Europe or the rest of the world? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you know more than anybody that, you know, like in terms of like spending power and like the luxury market, like nothing is bigger than Asia. Asia is huge. In fact, um, long story short, but like I, I was looking at the stats of like luxury sale and um, they've grown over COVID. Like why, you know, people buying like Birkin bags, like it's, it's, it's insane. Um, and so in a way it's weird because the things in Asia in terms of um, brick and mortar stores kind of like, let's say like dying out, 
even though it is happening in Asia, they're more willing to reinvest and redesigning that in order to get customers back in. Because the truth is, is like customers, they just don't stop shopping, you know? Whereas I think in the US, you're seeing a lot more innovation in kind of online retails and like, you know, online retailers are kind of like rethinking that process because um, I don't know. I just remember going to like Soho, New York and like, I mean, that used to be like the hottest place to own a retail store. And now you go there, it's like completely like desolate, you know? And, and then in Asia, we did a 1,200 store expansion of these um, three brands that were basically um, not performing because, and, and, and so it's like they have faith. And the idea of like redesign and, and user experience, what's really big in China right now is those entire like outdoor shopping mall experiences. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you like, it's like a village. It's almost like the outlet experience, I guess, equivalent in, in like the US or, the, or Europe. Or yeah, I think people always um, in China, they're looking for new experience. But they don't want to see the same thing very often. They always need new inspiration. They're just growing. I mean, they just they just like throwing money at anything. I mean, one of our biggest clients in the luxury sector is Cartier. And um, we it's funny because they just keep coming at us with new stores. And uh, and um, the last one was in Dalian, China. I didn't even know what, where Dalian was. But the fact that they have these cities that are um making enough you know that they're that they're they have enough people spending in you know cities around china that are that they're gonna need another you know cartier I mean, that's like a big that's like a big deal it's, yeah the chinese economy just keeps going it's just so buzzy you know it's just it just keeps growing <laughs> um and they have, yeah, they have a lot of capital to kind of keep redesigning brick and mortar retail stores. What, what do you think, what's an architect's or a, design, a designer's responsibility in such a developing ecosystem, let's put it yeah. like, in terms of, of course, if you keep building new things, if you keep consuming, all that is, well, then we have been talking a lot about environmental issue or sustainability. Yeah. So what's your role? What, what is your role in all this? I feel like from like a personal point of view, um, this is a huge topic, right? Like, in, and of course it's a joint effort. And so if, and if everybody doesn't kind of do their own part, even if it's like walking to work or like whatever your part is, um, that we're never gonna reach the goal as like all as a world, right? But also, I I'm also a consultant, so while I might I might push like my own beliefs or I might um, suggest in the schedules like certain suppliers that I know have like a very like cradle to cradle belief in the way that they um, manufacture and, and do things. I can't at the end of the day I can't force my clients to like. Um, to think about like long-term costs versus short-term. Like I, I can suggest it, but then the day I'm in the, at the mercy of their, of their desires. So if they say to me, like, 
I want stone from Italy, like I can be like, but I found a great local quarry and we've done, we have some samples and we'll send them to you. And I think it's really beautiful. But at the end of the day, I, I'm still, I don't have that upper hand to make the decisions until I'm a developer with like my own fund, you know? Um, so I, I try to lead by example, like our furniture line is sustainably sourced. It's all EU made. Like we, we do our best with trying to keep things, um, you know, very sustainable on our end and, and to, and to um, recommend our clients do the same. But yeah, I think we all have to do our own part. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, as like big or small as it is, you know, um, yeah, it's like, it's like a, it's like, it's like even like the small things we might do like eco wear or whatever at the end of the day, it's like, yeah so yeah do our best talking about future so you are part of the lego groups <laughs> campaign very interesting you had a idea you had an idea session with 60 kids you know yeah the lockdown yeah that was so, so funny yeah more about the day yeah. um well first i have to say i absolutely love and respect the lego group so much um, not just because they, I think, are an incredible company in terms of promoting creativity. Of course, I played with Lego as a kid. Um, my son plays with Lego. So being able to go through generations and still have that continuity of interest and a singular product, which is basically a tiny, you know, <laughs> tiny brick. Um, they are an amazing business model. I mean, if you, and it's completely public, if you looked at the revenues of last year, they made over 5 billion in simply selling uh, Lego toys. And if you look at Forbes list of children's like most wanted like gifts of 2020 of boys and girls, the number one was Lego, which is shocking because everything under that was like Xbox, it was iPhone. So the only like non-analog gift was Legos and then there was like bicycles somewhere. But I think that um, to create such a sustainable, like creative way to think. And so I've done a lot of um, workshops with them where we got together with other creatives, like child psychologists and like, you know, people from Cambridge to talk about um, the psychology of children, the future, and how we should be promoting, basically exercising the creative part of the brain and why like as adults, we get boring, <laughs> basically. And um, the truth is with like AI and learning and all this kind of technology being formed, it's so important that what, we're, what we should do with our kids right now is exercising their creative side, that knowledge, even though the AI might exist and get creative, it, it, like nuanced ideas and thinking outside of the box, that's something that's still very human driven. And, and so I think that whilst Lego is, you know, this billion pound like toy brand with all these joint ventures with like Ikea till Disney or whatever, the base premise of it, and I think what makes it really successful is the key that it's imagination in a box. You've like, I, and it's crazy because you give this to a kid and they'll take it and they'll do anything. And it's 
an ice cream shop. It's、uh, one person made a grandma's cafe, and one person made a charging dock for electrical scooters. I mean, the creativity is insane. And then you give it to an adult, and they're like, "Well, where's the instructions? Because I'm not really sure what to do." Almost like it was weird at the Lego interview. I'm like, I just hope that the way that they think, they can just like bottle that and never let it go, because I don't think people value the type of And I don't want to say naivety because these kids that were eight years old were doing vertical farming with rainwater collecting systems and drone, human drone systems that had like solar panel、um, power charging stations. And whilst it sounds like very、um, kind of like out there, and the same token, I was like, well, I could see this in twenty years. You know, like vertical urban farming inside a house. Like, well, it's already existing in our grocery stores here. So maybe it might exist in a house, and in a way, you kind of need this. Like an eight-year-old thought of this, you know, but and an adult didn't, and so it's like you almost needed this type of like bright-eyed, almost kind of like naive creativity to to think of something new. And then what was really cute is these little girls. They came up to me and they're like. We want to be an architect, and I was like, "Oh gosh," <laughs> because Yoko, you know how hard we work. But like,、um, I was, I and it was quite special because even though, yeah, we work really hard, I was thinking like, these little girls are our future. Like, you know, in in like whatever ten twenty years, I'll be like. Not retired, but like hopefully chilling. <laughs> they're gonna be the ones designing our houses, you know. And I was like, if I could have, like, if I influenced them just like um just a tiny bit for them to even like think of the world differently. Actually, they were like thinking of the world differently. I was just putting them into CGI for them. <laughs> um, yeah, to just like not lose that magic. I think it it was pretty amazing. Yeah, super cute. I'm sure they will remember that day with you for the rest of their life. Well, I don't know if they will, but I certainly will. I was like, I'm stealing your ideas for later. <laughs> And talking about influence, influences. I think, well, your father being one of the biggest influence in your life. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's a he's a NASA scientist. To the U.S. from Taiwan in the seventies. Yeah, exactly.、Um, so, what I think what's funny is like, I don't think. Well, for one thing, I don't think kids appreciate their parents enough, because whilst we're growing up, we don't like cognitively think of them as an influence in our life. They're just dad, you know, or it's just mom, and they're just there to like make our beds and cook us food, <laughs> and like well, at least that's what my parents did.、Um, and I think that even now, when I think about my dad being an influence, it's more like thinking about like what do I naturally do, and then trying to. Figure out like why do I do it? You know,、yeah. it's always been working hard, and it's always been like, well, why do I work hard? And like, what? Who? Who instilled these ideas in me? Because like, my parents never pushed me. People, I think people have this misconception that like Asian parents are like tiger parents, and they like they make you do things. But it, my parents, they were very.、Um, Uh, kind of like do whatever you want, and they always and they saw that I was good at art, and so they put me in a lot of like art classes. And my dad would tell me things like,、um, if you can, if you can get a really good education, then you can support yourself. And for him, that was huge. And I, you know, he was an immigrant to America, so he would say.、Um, 
you have to speak the language because you have a, an Asian face. And so people will expect you to understand the language. And he used to also say, um, because, you know, you do have a different face. He's like, you need to work harder. I think what he meant was that um, there, there's discrimination in this world. And if you're just average, like then, then like you can't compete in this kind of market. And again, it wasn't tiger parenting, but I do think that um, this is the way that he kind of like came in as an immigrant and like climbed up the ranks. And was he was like telling me like the reality of the world is that these are the things that you have to do being an immigrant, really. And even though I wasn't an immigrant, I was an American. I think he was trying to help me relate to um, you know, the reality of the way the world thinks. And he was always like that. He never sugarcoated anything. He was like, you know, being an architect is a very laborious job. And he was always just like being realistic with me, you know, and, and I think I, I appreciated that. And he always tutored me through high school and college in physics and math. And um, he always told me to do the right thing, like no matter what, I know that sounds obvious. And, and I think one thing he always taught me, which I really appreciate, and again, it's like, I didn't realize these were like mentoring things. It's just like things your parents tell you is to make my own living and make my own money. And I think that, um, and I, I'm not trying to turn this into like a, a, a female male thing, but I think that a lot of, a lot of like women feel a little bit trapped in their lives if the man is constantly providing for everything. And all my dad ever wanted from me and my sister was just freedom, like the ultimate freedom to make our own decisions and be able to see them through because we weren't relying on anybody for money. And that was another thing he drilled into us is like, do not borrow cash from anybody. Do not own a credit card if you can't pay it back. Don't buy that if you can't afford it. And so like all these little like financial ticks were very much driven at a super early age. And I think even as like a business owner, I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna say I'm like the best person with cash, you know, that's why I have three people on my financial team. I like don't even, yeah, don't put me in charge of it, but um, being kind of like conservative with what you have. And I remember like um, when I was younger, I said to my dad, I said, because um, my dad is getting older and I said, dad, don't worry. I promise before you go, you'll get that chance to walk me down that aisle and see that a guy's going to take care of me. And my dad looked at me, he goes, Dara, he's like, all I've ever wanted in my life is to know that you can take care of yourself. And that's where you are. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, thank God. Cause my parents are super traditional. And so I thought like, even though like I have always taken care of myself for Christ's sake, you know, and that's where I am ultimately. And I'm very proud of that. I always thought that because they came from a very traditional background of like, you know, the guy taking care of everything that they wanted that for me. I think my dad also being very modern in the way he was thinking, I think really influenced me a lot. Like I love empowering females. I love giving people a chance. Like I, that's like, you know, something that's very close to my heart. It's not something like they drilled into me, but I think it's like something that my dad has always been very honest about. And um, he just never wanted to see us like stuck, you know, mm -hmm. and he paid for my Harvard tuition because he wanted to make sure that that was his investment to me. It was like my gift 
that I could keep giving back to myself. And of course, being Asian, you know, oh, so I want to take care of, of my mom. If, you know, God forbid anything happens to him one day, it's like very much about us giving back. I mean, you know how it goes. It's like, as soon as you graduate college, they're like, are you going to send us some money? It's like, yeah, great. <laughs> priceless. It's priceless. And I'm sure your parents are very proud of you now. And I I mean, I don't know. I never really ask them. <laughs> well, even for, even for, for, for women, I mean, you can have your career, you can be married, you can be happy, you can do whatever you want. There's no boundary. It's not that you I mean, have one thing and you can't have the other. It's funny because we live in these really modern times and everything, the way we do things are all changing. We're like in our parents' generation, the women was in charge of childcare part of the child's life and it's the same with work it's like if, if both genders are like it, like both hands-on with the household care they're both hands-on with bring um the bacon on the table too you know what i mean and i think it's a very healthy mentality for um to, to like contribute on all levels and have your counterbalance also contribute on like household levels as well um but yeah whatever it's a it's you know, there's no right answer and I'm supportive of every way to do things. So by no means do I'm saying like, this is the way to go. It's just. Yeah. And not, not so long ago, you posted a quite a personal message on Instagram about your struggle growing up being Asian in a Western uh -huh. How did you overcame it and turn it into your strengths and opportunities? Oh gosh. I think it's just, that's just like a demographic thing. Like it, it's, you know what I mean? I think it was just like, um, I kind of grew up in a really small town. And so it's not like I had to do anything. It was more like the surroundings around me were it, like really, really changing. And then, you know, then I, well, you know, I have an office in Hong Kong. So like, and my th I think what's really interesting and strange is like when I'm in America, I'm Asian. When I'm in Asian, I'm American, right? So like, <laughs> what I've realized is like, look, I'm a global citizen. I'm completely happy with that. And now I reside in London, which by the way, London, I've been here for 10 years and I have never once in my life heard the term white in London because nobody is white here, you know? Like everybody's like German, Czech, they're Russian, they're, they're French, they're, they know where they're from. They're American if they're here. They're not white, they're American. And so like, um, it just so happens that, you know, I was, I was born in America. I'm very proud of that. I love America. I love being American. But it, in, in uh, the irony is it's a country that's made up of immigrants that have obviously uh, occupied it, um, you know, for uh, a few hundred years and, and have, you know, their identity is being American now. Guess what I'm trying to say is that it was it was it was much harder growing up in a small town in America than like then traveling the world and experiencing things. So I I don't think that like my level of confidence changed with the 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 racial implications. <laughs> I think to be quite honest, and I say this to women all the time, it actually changed with age. And I know that like, you know, women, like they fear aging for some reason, 
but I really like it made me so much more confident when I turned 30 for some reason I like didn't feel like a kid I felt like my opinion was hard like I could stand up and like speak and like it mattered and for some reason in my 20s I my first jobs were always in corporate offices from Hertz of Demeron to Foster's I don't know why I was afraid to say what I thought. I thought that like all these like men around me were like telling me what to do. And I, and they would like, I don't know. I just felt like my, my opinion didn't matter. I couldn't say anything on site. Like, and it was so silly because if I go back and I, and I think of my younger self, I wish that I knew what I knew now, but it took like being older and experienced to realize that like, being a young woman, we harness so much power, you know, I, I swear we do. And so now I like worry about that. I keep aging. Cause I'm like, Oh, but I feel so much more confident as like a young woman or where I am now. Like, I, I don't know because I won't know myself in my forties or my fifties. And maybe by this time I'm in my sixties, I'll be like, Oh, wow. <laughs> I wish I knew now what I, what, you know, I didn't know when I was in my thirties and trying to prove myself all the time, you know, cause I do think that like we go through these um, 10 year gaps where we, where we are on a different agenda. And I heard this from the CEO of Coca-Cola, who's actually an Asian woman. Right. And she was saying in her 30s, it's all about like the years of like proving yourself. And I do think that to some extent it's true because you go from this kind of like Gen X a little bit like lost all of a sudden like you're 30, you're like, yes, I found myself. But now like, how do I formulate that, you know? And then once you kind of like, um, not like convince all these people that I can do this because you're like still like running the rat race and trying to build a portfolio. And then when you're in your forge, like, okay, peace, chilling. I've done my portfolio, like hire me or don't, or I'll find another client and goodbye. <laughs> you know, the business has been seven years old and, um, I feel like, yeah, it's, it's, it has been a lot like that. Like, you know, pitching and, you know, and trying to prove yourself and then, um, yeah, feeling a lot more comfortable with myself now. So yeah, again, I don't, I don't know that, you know, confidence came. Um, uh, yeah, I think it just is just like changing your, your location. And even though I was young, and I think I wrote um, that I was teased for being Asian. Um, it's not something that was like mentally scarring or anything, you know what I mean? It was just something that I remember happening. And I remember being like, I don't have a choice over this. Like I was born this way, <laughs> you know, like how can you like hold something against me that like I can't change. And then, and now it's like, I quite like, I don't know. I mean, you too, like, don't you love being a nation? <laughs> I think it's so cool. It's like, like I was saying, it's kind of like, it's a USP. Um, I connect with like other women, but especially other Asian women. And, and um, we've got, you know, it's like, we look young for a really long time. <laughs> you know, we're in a, we're in like a growing sector and a market that's economically booming. So in a way, I think being a global citizen is like the best citizen to be because it means that you can insert yourself around the world. And Yoko, you do it beautifully. You're in freaking Amsterdam right now. And you just blend in. And, um, and beauty is really within, 
right? You go into a country with like a stinky attitude, no one's gonna warm to you. You're a global citizen, you're used to assimilating yourself, eating different foods, meeting different people. People will just like think you're a beautiful person inside. And, and so it, it didn't really, it doesn't matter if you're like Asian or whatever color or whatever you are. Um, it's all about attitude at the end of the day, right? I agree. I agree. You, you need to have an open heart to embrace or to um, respect any kind of culture. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I think with so much travel that I've done, um, yeah, it's, there's just no tolerance for ignorance, you know, it's just, it just doesn't work. So, um, and I, at the end of the day, it's like, I'm just being myself as are you. And, and, and it's like, if you're, if you're a nice human being, then like, it's just a lovely place to be, isn't it? So what's your plan for Christmas? Are you traveling anywhere? What God, Yoko, I have become like Susie Housemaker. I'm not joking you. I like my favorite thing to do is to like, buy a bunch of arts and crafts and like, um, you probably see on my Instagram, I like glue stuff to my tree. <laughs> like the most craziest things I'm like making Christmas decor. Like I've realized that like people just, they're not gonna be probably traveling and experiencing Christmas like they used to. Um, and so a lot of people will be staying at home. So while it seems like a little bit frivolous to post things like I bought this on Amazon for like $7.99, I think, I'm serious. I think um, in a way I'm like, look, I'm not my client. Um, well, I don't want to throw out any numbers there because then it's going to scare people from being our clients. <laughs> but I don't have like an unlimited, you know, pot of cash right here to just like pour into my interiors. I mean, um, so like as like a real person and I'm renting my place, it's like I want to show how accessible it is to make it nice and cozy regardless of your budget because a lot of things are actually about taste. And, and like I think a lot of people are kind of missing that component where they're like, actually, you know, like I, I, I'm doing this whole like Instagram story about um, when you're decorating a tree, come up with a concept and like a color theme before just like going for it. You know, if you want like a designer tree, if you want like to bring Christmas home, because the truth is, it's like, yeah, I'm staying in London for Christmas as are a lot of people that would have probably traveled abroad. And it's really important that we get that like spirit, especially if people are here alone. Thank you so much for today. Dara, it's always so nice talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice seeing you virtually. Yeah, I hope to see you soon somewhere in the world. Absolutely. Have a nice day.